0: Hi, I'm Carol Pope, and you're listening to The Stewie Tunes Show with Tony Stewart and Aaron
1: Badgley. In a career spanning more than 40 years, there isn't much that Keith Glass hasn't seen or done. A founding member of Canadian country music icons Prairie Oyster, Keith has enjoyed a long and successful tenure as both their lead guitarist and as a songwriter. Since Prairie Oyster disbanded, he has formed a new group, the Keith Glass Band, with a style that encompasses rock and roll, country, R&B, folk and blues, all fused into Keith's original songs. Keith is a multiple Juno and CCMA award winner, is a member of the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame with Prairie Oyster, and as a SOCAN Songwriters Lifetime Achievement Award winner, he now resides in Cars, Ontario, where he lives with his family and works on his new projects in his home studio. As an added bonus to today's episode, Keith has very generously agreed to let me preview one of his new songs, so stay tuned at the end of the episode, because we're going to play that song in full for you. I think you're going to love it. And I also think you're really going to enjoy our chat, so let's listen in. Welcome, Welcome to, to the Stewie, Stewie Tune, Tune Show. Show.
2: These are insights and commentary on the music and musicians that shape our lives. And now, let's go back to class with your host, Tony Stewart.
1: All right. Good morning, Keith. Thanks for joining me today. Really, really appreciate this.
2: My pleasure. Great to be here.
1: Thank you. So, um, I guess just for everybody who's listening to the show today, um, tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, the first maybe groups you played with, um, when you started playing that kind of thing. Because um, I, I, I'm, I'm, me too. I'm interested in that. I love kind of hearing where people started and.
2: Well. Uh... I'm a child of the 50s, so I grew up um, through the 50s and kind of blossomed musically, I guess, in the 60s, so my influences were, I like to think, pretty broad. Uh, I think it was a very fortunate time in the sense that music hadn't become quite so formalized as it has since, so, you know, like, my early influences were the Beatles, undeniably, but I can remember kind of being blown away by Dean Martin and obviously Elvis Presley. And I can remember hearing an Arthur Godfrey song on the radio when I was a little kid. (laughs) So music was all over the map. I mean, if you think of the the top charts like on Chum Radio in Toronto where I grew up near, uh, I remember Tiger by the Tail by Buck Owens being on the charts the same time as Twist and Shout by the Beatles. So what does that tell you about how, kind of wide open the borders were then. So I've kind of had a weird career in that I've I've played a little bit of everything. Uh without doubt, I'm known best for having played with Prairie Oyster for almost 40 years. That mm-hmm. was you know, that rare I'm one of those rare people that had, you know, basically had this factory job in this band, if you will, you know, <laughs> back in the <laughs> days when you could you could work for one company for a long time. Um, but we were really fortunate in that we did have such a long career. I mean, it wasn't always the heyday, obviously. We, we you know, played around the bar circuit in Ontario for, you know, 15 years before anything ever happened. But um, that was my main thing. I started playing rock bands in a rock band in, in high school with a drummer with whom I still play now.
1: Yeah, I saw that. Who
2: was the first drummer in Prairie Oyster? Yeah. And... Uh, and then we you know, we started Prairie Oyster and he was in the band for a few years and then he went off and lived in Winnipeg. However, uh along the way I also we also had a bluegrass band before Prairie Oyster happened. And then in a lull between the versions of Prairie Oyster, um I had my own sort of R and B rock and roll band in Toronto. So you know, I guess it's all been sort of painted by my, my influences, those being rock and roll, R&B, jazz, blues, country, obviously, bluegrass, rockabilly, you name it.
1: So when you uh, started Prairie Oyster, uh, just describe how you and Russ met. Did you meet through various bands that where you were in or had you uh, known each no. other before then?
2: No, it it was easier than that. His parents and my parents played poker every Saturday night before we were born.
1: Oh, really? And,
2: and uh, so we knew each other from the time we were born, more or less. I'm oh, a, wow. I'm a year older than him, but we grew up playing together and um, went all through school together and uh, started the aforementioned sort of bluegrassy band together when we were in our teens, you know, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old. And that band eventually morphed into Prairie Oyster about nineteen seventy four, I guess. So we were in our early twenties.
1: And you started was Prairie Oyster originally a trio? Is that what I was reading no, correctly? No.
2: no. No, that's just a that's an accident of uh of journalism. Oh, okay. Um, it's fake news. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> No it's it, it sounds great because it 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 says it was me and Russell and Dennis but yeah we we were indeed the genesis of the band but no it was always intended that it would be a band of a whole bunch of people and we knew when we the three of us met actually Russell and I were playing in the King City Slickers which was our bluegrass band in Peterborough Ontario and we met some really great musicians in a band called Heavenly Jukebox,
1: <laughs> oh. which
2: was a guy named Chris Cuddy and uh Jim, whose last name I can't remember, on bass, and Dennis on who was playing steel and banjo and fiddle and everything else and guitar. And um we kind of went, Wow, these guys are really cool. But that steel guitar guy is just like he's a monster. And so They were falling apart and uh, we were, our band was kind of falling apart. So we spoke to him about trying to start something. So in the sense, yes, three of us started the band, but we were never a trio. We immediately had a, he had a friend who was a really good fiddle player, a guy named Zeke Mazurek, who joined the band and Alistair on drums. And then we found a guy. There are so many weird stories. I mean, you've only got about a half an hour here. I could spend hours just on this. We ended up doing a TV show, as some of us, Dennis and I, I think, as backup musicians for a guy named Tom Gallant, an East Coast singer-songwriter guy who was the Tommy Hunter show. Uh, what's the word? Substitute, the, the summer summer uh, sub for the Tommy okay. Hunter show. They used I, to remember, do that that I remember. I remember that show, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was like the most popular show in Canada. So then this Tom Galant guy, they decided he should go on the road and they put some dates together. He didn't have a working band, a road band. So his manager was sort of managing us and he said, why don't you use Keith and Dennis? And then we met this piano player. It's a long and crazy story. So
1: Oh, you can go ahead. We have a bit of time if you want.
2: Uh, Well, it it just kind of tumbled along and grew and uh, morphed. And I think at one point, sort of after the fact, I I realized we've had 17 drummers through the course of the band's history. 17. (laughs) And probably five different fiddle players. One, two, three, four. Four different piano players. Wow. Uh but yeah Dennis and I Russell yeah the three of us uh, obviously have been the only bass player guitar player and steel guitar player
1: and and so I wanted to talk to you about, a little bit about uh and we were mentioning this before when we chatted before the interview today about the heyday of that new country uh movement in the <laughs> 90s um cuz I I remember everybody uh I was just getting out of university then and I had joined uh, the military and uh, I, I, it was so popular. And uh, I, I guess that would have been the heyday for Prairie Oyster too, right? Early 90s in there?
2: Yeah. Okay. So the thing that happened for us was, um, and, and again, I think, you know, time and tides, we, we played around through this, late 70s until about 78 or 79 and then we fell apart just because nothing was going on then you know we were really fishes out of water we there was nobody doing what we were doing in the in the 70s and even into the early 80s and we played along and goofed along and just kind of by dint of stubbornness and and stupidity I suppose just kept plugging away at it with no great high pretensions or hopes, but we had a manager who uh, kind of pushed things a little bit and sent a demo tape off. And he only sent the tape to one record label. He sent it to RCA Nashville, which happened to have uh, Foster and Lloyd, uh, oh gosh, Clint Black. Oh, wow. A bunch of people that, you know, we actually thought were pretty cool at the time, especially Foster and Lloyd, I mean, they were, they were cool they were they, but but the key words here are new country and this was before that that phrase had been coined and um <laughs> it was kind of the you know if anybody referred to the the movement at all they'd say it was the neo-traditionals or the new traditionals. Oh, uh at that same time the Juds were coming up yeah uh, ricky ricky skaggs was was all over the place vince gill I mean, there was some really, really cool music. the The only defining thing about it was that it was cool, and that it was every act was different. Do you know what I mean? Like nobody uh-huh. sounded like anybody else. There was no none of that sort of let's lump it all together. And and so, and and there's an interesting story in this. Maybe you'll find it interesting. So we he sent it only to RCA Records in Nashville to the the attention of. Um, the label uh, chief, a guy named Joe Galante, who was a New York guy, but he'd been sent to Nashville to run the show. And he went, well, these guys are really weird. They're, they're like way left of center. And, you know, that's perfect for this time. So they signed us. And it was very bizarre. Like it was 1989 that we got signed and our first record came out a year later. Coincidentally, the last vinyl record released by RCA Records Nashville. And thereafter, everything went to uh, CDs. Okay. So you mentioned that you'd, you had, or somebody you knew had a copy of our uh, cassette tape of a yeah. playlist. Record. Yeah, I remember when those were, that was a big deal. At any rate, I can remember about three years later, this thing came along. Uh, this phenomenon called new country or young country. Yes. yeah, Right. And, and everybody cr- like just crowed about it, right? Like it was the be all and the end all. And I, I would caution now as always beware catchphrases because in my estimation, it kind of destroyed the whole, <laughs> the whole what, the whole integrity of it. Because immediately you had to put this label on it. And I can remember so vividly having arguments with people. Unfortunately, some of them took place during interviews such as this. But there'd be some earnest jock, like a radio jock, saying, how does it feel to be part of the young country music? And I would say, I I don't really feel like I'm part of it. I I find it hard to think that I would be part of something that essentially has... uh, killed its past or has done everything it possibly could to kill its past. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I do. It, it went from a time where, for example, um, and, and this is the 70s up in the 80s, right up into the 90s, you could hear, um, you could still hear Merle Haggard on the radio. He was still deemed legitimate and real Or or Tammy Wynette could still put a single out even though she was probably in her late 40s by then. Uh, George Jones could still get on the airwaves. And suddenly this new country thing came along. And so the the notion of it was that nobody over the age of, let's pick an age, no artist over the age of 25 should be allowed to make records anymore. Or they can go ahead and make records, but we ain't going to play them, except on the Sunday morning oldies shows. So even people like Vince Gill started falling off the charts. And it just kind of destroyed itself. It was almost like, an embarrassment that anything old should get played, and if you if you think of the the parallel of that being, uh, let's say, whatever the main rock station is in 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 Ottawa, right? If they just suddenly said, "Hey, we're new rock," and they're not going to play Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, the Stones, you go on through the list because it's old crap. Well, isn't that a bit of a weird precedent? Anyway, yeah. So, there, I've had my rant. I feel well, better now
1: because I'll I pop always pop off with some coffee. <laughs> I always wondered, you know, why that kind of phenomenon happened the way it did, just from a historical perspective, having <laughs> lived through it, right? Because I, I just so remember weird. it was everywhere. Like it yeah, was, it was, and people who had never listened to a, you know, country—I'm making air quotes here—country yeah. album, all of a sudden were buying up, you know, boatloads of CDs and. Yeah, it was wild. And
2: and and the and the weird thing about it is if you fast forward uh through to what we're seeing now in country music, and apologies to anybody who who works in that field, but it bears very little resemblance to to country music anymore. Nobody can argue that. I mean, I think that's pretty pretty well agreed. It it is a different animal altogether. Maybe it is truly what we should call a young country. I don't know. I mean when I hear Canadian artists now who when they're in interviews speak with a Southern accent and they're wearing ludicrous cowboy outfits and cowboy hats and uh, there's a couple of weird benchmarks or or trademarks I guess you'd say. Male artists will only appear with a cowboy hat or a ball cap. (laughs) You will never see them bareheaded. Uh, There's just, it's just weird. It's weird. I I just don't get it, but that's my prerogative. I can, I can say what I want about it. exactly. I I personally don't have any connection to it anymore, but that's because I'm old. I liked, I loved Merle Haggard. I actually sang with Merle Haggard. Oh, you did. Which is a, maybe one of the musical highlights of my life, but yeah. Anyway, there you go.
1: So before we go to break, I was gonna ask you, you know, because uh, all your days touring and and you've toured fairly extensively. What would you say? Maybe a couple of highlights from those days. So Merle Haggard, you just mentioned, was one. Uh, any others come to mind?
2: Um, I can think of a whack of them, and 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 I, I mention them only because it, it's almost surreal for me to think you know, and I don't mention them as name dropping, but of course it's going to sound like that. The aforementioned singing with Merle, like I sang a whole show with him and I don't even think he knew who I was. It just was his background singer said,
0: come on up, come on up.
2: And I don't think she knew who I was other than I was some guy that had been in the band that was on before them. And I came up and I sang and I I don't know, was was it Kismet or what, but unbeknownst to them, I grew up idolizing Merle Haggard's music and could sing any one of the songs and any one of the harmony parts. So <laughs> it was pretty bizarre. <laughs> so like this guy walks up and says, okay, I'll take the second. Anyway, uh, another time we were in Los Angeles at a Academy of Country Music Awards show and I was backstage and Johnny Cash walked in the room. And I was the first person standing in line sort of thing. And he said, hello, I'm Johnny Cash and shook my hand. And I went, yes you are and another great time was meeting Minnie Pearl who I don't people would know who she was but she was a country comedian but an incredibly bright woman and coincidentally was one of the few people who was really close friends with Hank Williams Hmm. and uh, up to his death and I had been in a play called Hank Williams the show he never gave as the guitar player and part of that whole thing was the, the the background of the play was, was how close he was to her. There were a lot of sort of anecdotal things about how she had told him, you know, you gotta stop this crazy lifestyle and, you know. Anyway, so yeah, we sat backstage uh, on the Ralph Emery show, Nashville Now show, and talked for about half an hour about her life and her friendship with Hank. I mean, but the biggest part of it all, and, and then I'll leave you in, uh, to the break, is that I just think it was really fortunate to have a career at all in music because it's really hard to do now. Like I said, having almost 40 years of of playing and touring and making a living and, you know, with some great people and getting to travel all over the world or a good chunk of it, um, you know, barely an inch of North America I haven't seen and played in and most of Europe. That's pretty great. It was just a phenomenal experience probably won't be repeated
1: yeah that uh, that does sound uh, pretty amazing that looks like a good spot for the break so we're gonna take uh, a few moments for our music history moment and we'll be right back with Keith Glass let's go back in time all the way to July 6th 1957 on that day a meeting of future rock giants occurred John Lennon and Paul McCartney met for the first time at the Walton Church Parish Fete as Lennon's group the Quarrymen were setting up for their performance. Eager to impress Lennon after they were introduced, and Paul was asked what he could play, Cartney picked up a guitar and played 20 Flight Rock by Eddie Cochran and bebop Aluba by Gene Vincent. He then showed Lennon how to properly tune his guitar as Lennon had never done it before and had always relied on other people. Lennon was suitably impressed and asked him to join the band, and the rest is history. Now back to the show. Okay, we're back with Keith Glass. And uh, Keith, I wanted to uh, spend the second half of the show talking about what you've been doing since uh, Prairie Oyster uh, disbanded. So um, I understand you had a collaboration with Lynn Miles quite extensively.
2: Yeah, actually, um, were it not for this pandemic shutdown, uh, we would probably be in. No, Michigan's over. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure where we'd be. I've kind of lost track, but um, yeah, I've been playing with Lynn since Prairie Oyster was still going. But you know, Prairie Oyster had a pretty defined schedule, so I could do other things on the side. I always had a little rock and roll band on the side um, when I lived in Perth, and I had a call from Lynn in. Well, I, I can date it because it was right before the 911 or right after the 911 uh, catastrophe. And she needed somebody to go to Europe and play a, a few weeks over there with her and uh, asked if I was available. And as it turned out, I was. And so that was 2001, late 2001. And I've been playing with her ever since, whenever it's possible, as a sideman playing guitar, mandolin, and singing harmonies.
1: Excellent. Yeah. So that's a long collaboration, yeah.
2: Yeah, 18 years. Wow. Yeah, uh, crazy.
1: And then let's talk about your band now, the Keith Glass Band. Uh, yeah. So why don't you uh, give me a rundown of the lineup of the band. And we already mentioned that your drummer you met in high school, which I yeah, think is great. Yeah. That's really cool.
2: Well, as I said, I've always sort of had something on the side, uh, even during Prairie Oster's heyday. Uh, at least since since I moved to Perth, which was in 91. And uh, I met some great musicians in Perth uh, who I still uh, am very close with. We were just about to play a big fat reunion gig of our band Twister um, <laughs> when this thing happened. So we we were all lined up to play this big show uh, in Perth in May. And uh, obviously it came and went. But um, so I moved from Perth, as I said, uh, to Cars. Ontario in 2007, and just kind of just by dint of it being that far away, it became impossible to kind of keep contact with the guys to play on a regular basis to rehearse. It was just too much. And coincidentally, uh, my former drummer friend moved eight minutes away from me. Alistair moved to Manitou, so we reconnected and you know, we would do gigs as a duo. I would just play acoustic guitar and he'd play percussion, congas, you know, noise. And, um, and then we thought, we well, got to find a bass player. And we played with a whole bunch of different people over the years and it, it, nothing ever quite stuck. Not that it wasn't good or, uh, worthwhile. It just, it just didn't stick. And, um, Only about three and a half, four years ago, we met um, a guy named Mike Turin, who's a really great veteran sort of Ottawa bass player. And I had known of him when he played with Sue Foley years ago and had no idea how to get in touch with him and finally just kind of literally tripped over him. I ran into Tony D one night and said, Hey, what are you up to? He said, Oh, I'm going to play the gig tonight. I said, who plays bass with you? He said, Mike Turin's playing bass. And I said, This is the guy I've been trying to find for years. How do I reach him? (laughs) I'll tell him to give you a call. So, um, so yeah, Mike has been playing with us ever since. And then about two and a half years ago, he introduced us to a great friend of his, a guy named Steve Trucarton. Who's a killer sax player, and I, I thought, wow, this would be great. But you know, sax is just a and no offense to you because I know you're a horn player, but if you're a trio and you're trying to do the the breadth of the stuff that I'm trying to do, yeah. I, 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 again, back to the, my musical beginnings, I want to be able to play uh, a country song. If I want, I want to be able to play a more sort of folky thing, uh, this, that, the other thing, I'm a songwriter first and foremost. So I, I, I thought, well, a sax is great it's too bad you can't, you know, if you played keyboards, I'd say, yeah, do you want to join the band? And he said, well, I do play keyboards. I play piano and organ. And I want to play in a band. (laughs) Now all of that of course sounds, you know, when I, I I even hear the words you want to be in my band. So like being in a band when you're at this stage of your life is not like a lifelong commitment anyway, you know, let's face it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to play five or six times a month. It's, it's, it's like golf, except I can make money doing it instead of it costing twenty grand a year. <laughs> exactly, so, it's a great hobby, uh, and and I do take it pretty seriously. Just by by virtue of the fact that I've been a professional musician all my life, so I, I take playing and getting on stage pretty seriously. But anyway, these guys are great. Uh, it's, I, I with no with no disrespect res, disrespect to Prairie Oster, It's the best band I've ever had. It's it's kind of, and I suppose that's because it, it does almost exclusively my material or songs that I've chosen to do. So I can be completely self-indulgent and we can. So
1: Yeah. And there's a nice blend of styles there. And I do like, you know, what you were talking about back when Elvis, for instance, I mean, he was pretty hard to peg a guy like that down. I mean, I know they pinned the King of rock and roll label on him after, but you could just as easily say he was a country singer or a gospel singer or well, everything his, everything was so fluid back then yeah
2: absolutely i mean it, it in the interview he was asked who's his favorite singer and who did he say bing crosby <laughs> so <laughs> you know influences and uh, yeah it's it's i find it sad in a way uh that that we've lost that you know i mean i'm i i've i have a daughter and i do everything i can to <laughs> to give her as broad a uh, uh, an influence in music as possible. I can remember when she was very young, you know, we'd go for drives because I was home with her and I'd say, hey, let's go for a drive. And i put on, let's say, an Ella Fitzgerald Lewis Armstrong CD or play some Nora Jones for her, or play Beatles or play George Jones. And so she grew up <laughs> being forced to listen to that stuff. And I think it's been really good for her.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I did an in, an interview yesterday with a couple of guys in a band called Double Experience, and it was interesting. You know, we're talking about the challenges of having a career in music, and uh-huh. their their experience is very different from what you would have done. Like you said, you know, they they have to yeah. do a little bit of everything uh, these yeah. days to make a career. Two of the hardest working guys I know, but uh, uh, they're doing it. But it's really interesting because they're juggling, you know, twenty balls trying to yep. make a career in music for sure.
2: Well well the thing that 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 blows me away about it and and the thing that I find most daunting because I'm in the same position I'm trying to be I'm trying to run a band, right? And trying to run a career after a fashion and at a at a level that I can find worthwhile. And I'd love to be playing more. I absolutely would love to. But when I think of what's needed and the biggest thing now is you, you, you have to be it's not enough that you're 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 the musician you're the songwriter you're the band leader you're the booking agent you're the manager yeah. but you also have to be an a social media guru and that's the part that i'm i'm probably never going to really fully understand I, I, twitter facebook it's all just it might as well be swahili to me i, I and i I'm not a dumb guy, but you know, admittedly, it took me years to figure out my uh, my recording platform, and and I've been into recording for almost 20 years now. I had a little studio in Perth, but I'm just not a techno guy, and so I find that the most daunting part of the career. So I think younger people have an advantage in that regard, and I'm not that in an ageist way. It's just that. Most people under the age of whatever grew up with the familiarity to computers that I'll never have. Computing devices, these computing machines—that's right, bad gum things.
1: <laughs> so this uh, sounds like a good time. Uh, are you ready to do the Stewie Tunes quiz?
2: <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks for warning me. <laughs>
1: oh, that's right. Uh, just a little <laughs> disclosure here, folks. I do give all guests the questions in advance. So, all right, let's get started.
2: Here's the question. Do all of your guests forget them as quickly as I did?
1: Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll get started. First question. Sure. Uh, favorite beetle?
2: Oh, that's easy. Uh, George.
1: That's mine, too. And and why yeah. George for you? Why George? Because he was
2: he was everything I'm not. He was understated. Um, he was the quiet one. <laughs> no, I, I, I always admired his songwriting. I mean, you can't deny that the two obvious guys were phenomenal songwriters. There's just no question of that. But George quietly wrote these great songs, and I think he was a very quiet, spiritual person and uh, a seriously underrated guitar player, in my estimation. Um, by all accounts, uh, he was kind of bullied and taunted by both George or by John and Paul and by George Martin. So, you know, good on him and he died yeah. much to young. So there you go.
1: Yeah, no, he's my favorite as well. And the older I get, the more I appreciate him. Yeah, for sure. Uh, question two. So the best live show that you've ever attended or seen or.
2: Wow. Oh, good Lord. Uh, okay. I, I'm going ha- to, I don't know if I can give it a best. I saw The Who the first time they came to Toronto. I was 15 years old. They played at the Coliseum at the Exhibition Grounds with a backing band. The, the opening act was Fat Mattress, which was Noel Redding's band. I saw Hendrix twice. Wow. I saw... Oh, God. Uh, I'm
0: on a roundabout. Uh, 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 uh,
2: Why can't I think of the name of that band? I saw them in London, England. Uh, 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 uh. Steve Howe, and. Anyway, okay, that one's gone by. (laughs) Fast forward. Uh, One of the coolest concerts I've ever seen, and uh, this is completely out of left field. Last summer, um, my daughter turned 13, and she's a huge Weird Al Yankovic fan. figure.
1: Oh, yeah, he's great
2: and it was phenomenal. Phenomenal musician, phenomenal writer, uh, just an amazing guy. Well, an old friend of mine, um, his brother plays drums in Al's band, hmm. and they were coming to Toronto. It was the only Canadian date they played last summer, so we got tickets. To see the show in Toronto last summer and backstage passes through my buddy to uh to go and meet up with Al afterwards. So it was maybe the greatest birthday gift I've ever given anyone. And we just <laughs> had we we so my wife and daughter and I went to the show and it was absolutely a stunning show. I mean, I I words failed me, like cause it was everything, right? It was funnier than dog parts. It was Musically brilliant. They had a what a forty-seven-piece orchestra on stage, as well as the regular band. And all the guys in the band have been with Al for minimum twenty-five years. It was just stunning. It was so good and so funny. And then the icing on the cake, going backstage afterwards and hanging out with Al and the guys. It was just great.
1: And and is he as friendly as I imagine him to be? Like he's
2: well, you know what my my friend John, the drummer, said. He he spends more time with the fans afterwards than he does on stage. Oh, wow. Which is true, like he just, there were hundreds of people waiting to meet him afterwards because he meets everybody that signs up for, from the fan club. And so we were in the so-called uh, VIP section and we got to hang out with him first. And But, he, you know, he shakes everybody's hand and says hello to everybody, poses for pictures. It was hours, apparently.
1: Oh well, I I talked about him briefly in the uh, episode that I put out yesterday and I said, you know, you've made it when Weird Al takes a shot at you in uh, one of his songs, right? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. Um this next one, who's the most underappreciated or unknown performer who you think everybody should know about?
2: That's easy, me. <laughs> no. I don't know. That's another one uh, because Funny, you know, like um, I did an interview a couple of weeks ago with somebody that asked <laughs> i'm not the I'm not the best person to answer this question because in the interview a couple of weeks ago, I was asked, What have I been listening to since the shutdown and I went, The same thing I always listen to nothing i i don't I'm not one of those people that gets up in the morning and has to have the radio on or you know has a favorite station or can't wait to get to the stereo and start turning on the tunes, or gets in the car and immediately puts on the radio. Now, there's enough going on up here
0: mm-hmm. that
2: I, I really, and I don't mean that in a boastful way, it's just I can't turn it off. So, the one thing I cannot do or can do is not turn other stuff on because it's a distraction. You know, I'm that guy that if I'm at a cocktail party and there's music on in the background, which there always is, I want to run screaming out of the room, pulling my hair out because. I can't do two things at the same time. I can't listen to music and, and talk.
1: Well, and you know what? It's amazing how many musicians uh, feel the same way. Like, uh, you know, I was just chatting with a friend of mine and the first thing in the car, it's not music for me that goes on. Like I'll put talk radio on or something just because I want to exactly. hear, you know, exactly. voices. Yeah. Yeah. And last question. So this one I kind of liked. If you could choose a musician or a band to come over for dinner hang out with. Who would you who would you invite? Why?
0: Oh
2: man. It would be so easy to say George Harrison. Mm -hmm. But it would be just as easy to say Louis Armstrong or Ella Fitzgerald or and then I think (sighs) easy again to pick the obvious ones with the big names. But oh man. You know there I think of all the people that I've admired over the years because they toiled in the background. Like, oh my God, could you talk to Ray Brown, for example? Mm -hmm. You know who Ray Brown was? Yeah. Upright bassist with, uh, he played with.
1: He played played with everybody.
2: Everybody. Yeah. Uh, So, and was married to Ella. Um, Yeah, so I don't know. That's a really hard one. Uh, let's just start by bringing back everybody who was dead, who was great. And that's, that's, a, that's going to fill a couple of coliseums.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: I, I
2: wouldn't, I wouldn't know where to begin. Oh my gosh. I, I could even just think of friends of mine who are past who I'd love to have back to finish conversations with, you know, people like Willie P Bennett who died way too young and who was a really great friend and somebody I admired so much as a songwriter and a musician. Oh my God. So yeah, there's one.
1: All right. And final uh, question, I think for today, Keith, um, thanks very much uh, for sending me that track soul sister, um, which oh. we'll, we'll play after the interview. I'll, I'll use that as uh outro music for uh, this episode, but do you want to just tell me a little bit about that track or?
2: Well, again, Uh, and I think there's a distinction here and I I have to make it clear. Um, There's a comma between soul and sister in it. (laughs) Okay. And it was a bit of an inside joke and I'll leave it at that with somebody that I love very much Uh, because she always calls me sister. (laughs) (laughs) Got that right, sister. So it began as a bit of a a tongue-in-cheek thing. But um, like I said, I grew up uh, near Toronto. I grew up listening to a lot of stuff the first music i remember seeing live, like high school dance music in and, and whatnot, was always Toronto had a fabulous r&b song. I mean, John Lee and the Checkmates, uh, Stitch in Time, all these great bands. Uh, some of these people went on with well, John Lee, John Findlay from John Lee and the Checkmates went on to form the band Rhinoceros. Uh bands like Bush, uh, all of most of those guys went on to play with Alice Cooper. Um there was a big, big well, Steppenwolf, um, the Sparrows, uh, solid, monstrous R and B scene, and I loved R and B, and so it was a big influence in me. And it's always, if if I go back and listen to my own songwriting over the years, there's always a twinge or a tinge, I should say, of of R and B in in the way I write and the way I approach songwriting and my thinking I guess so this song is obviously a big R&B kind of thing and uh Steve uh Tricartan um sax player played organ on it plays organ on it when we do it live and he just kind of surprised me by sending me these sax parts uh, a couple of months ago three months ago right right after the pandemic shut mm-hmm. down and I went oh my god I plugged the plugged the parts in and I and when I put the baritone parts in, I went, O, M to the G. This is phenomenal. So, you know, and when we do it live, we are going to need another Barry player. So, you know, if you happen to be uh, in the neighborhood.
1: Oh, give me a show. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I got something else I can ask you about after we finish our interview. Sure. It involves that involves your horn playing. too. So we'll get to that. But yeah, it's. I I love this and I love this band's ability to pull off stuff like this. And then three songs later, we'll do uh, a Hank Williams tune.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And, uh, and it all kind of fits in the same big old groove, you know? So thank you for playing it. Thank you very much. It's from a, I would hope to say forthcoming record. (laughs) (laughs) If there's ever a forthcoming, you know, we've got, like I said, six or seven tunes in the can, but, I don't really want to record the rest of the album remotely, so we can wait, and then we'll get the get it together.
1: And then once you've got that um album finished, let me know uh, the details, and I'll you know spread the word out there too.
2: Sure. Well, let people know. Like uh, we're posting little videos on Facebook on our Keith Glass Band Facebook page and on our keithglassband.com dot com web page, and just I don't know what else to do in this thing. You know, I, I yeah, don't, for sure. I don't, I don't want to do like little concerty things here, but that's kind of what I'm doing in my little studio with, uh, with the tracks from the guys. Yeah. And in some cases, they're sending in stuff to me, and I'm, I'm sticking it into Cubase and, and mixing it in. Then I do my part live, and we do what we do. Got to keep a, a pulse going, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been delightful to talk to you today. I really appreciate uh, the chance for the interview, Keith, and great to, great to meet you as well.
2: Likewise, I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh,
1: well, thanks so much. Thanks, Tony. And now, as promised, let's listen to Keith Glass's new song, Soul Sister, played by the Keith Glass Band. What a great song! Once again, I'd like to thank Keith for allowing me to preview it on today's episode. I really enjoyed our conversation. He's got such a wealth of knowledge and as you can tell is still very passionate about what he does. I'm grateful for the opportunity and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. That's all we have for today. Please remember to subscribe and consider leaving a rating or a review as those really help. Also, if you know anyone who you think might like this show, please spread the word. You can visit the Stewie Tunes Show website at stewietunes.com, where you can find episodes, blog posts, videos, and more. Background music for today's episode was provided by my good friend and musical partner, Rick Denis. So until we meet again, stay safe, be well, and see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Stewie Tune Show. If you're enjoying this show, don't forget to click subscribe.